Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church. We're so glad that you're here today. After the first service, I had several people come up to me and say that they were visiting, and it's always great to have visitors here that um, are from out of town, and we're glad that you take the time to come and worship on Sunday. Um, I'm sure that you've all heard the expression, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. Now, what does that exactly mean? The expression is usually levied at someone who is hopelessly optimistic and has a cheerful way about looking at life. Rose-colored glasses don't necessarily mean that you wear specs that have pink lenses. No, rather it describes a disposition that is upbeat, hopeful, brimming with optimism and positive thinking. Someone who sees through rose-colored glasses looks on the bright side. They see the glasses half full and a silver lining in every cloud. They see the world as a good place. Positive psychology is a field dedicated to the study of optimism and the optimist, and how this type of personality and philosophy can lead a person to live longer, have more confidence, improve one's mood and attitude, and achieve happiness. Researchers have discovered that those who think positively and have the ability to believe in the possibility of a good outcome to a bad situation, rather than dwell on negativity and pessimism, tend to succeed. A cynic, on the other hand, believes that to look through the world with rose-colored glasses creates an unrealistic expectation. One particular instance where this phenomenon is true is related to nostalgia. Reflecting on the past through rose-colored glasses often means forgetting the bad things and only reminiscing about the good old days. I have a confession to make. There have been a few times in my life, actually fairly often, that this has sometimes been levied at me as being a criticism, but I don't accept it that way. (laughs) I maintain that I do see the world through rose-colored glasses. Seeing the world that way, in many ways, defines a specific worldview. A worldview encompasses how we see and relate to life. It includes our choices, how we perceive the world that we live in, pattern our lives, and what values we embrace. It shapes what we believe to be right or wrong, real and true. As Christians, we are encouraged to see our world through God-colored glasses, to look at our faith, our families, our work, and even our country from God's perspective. However, every single day, each one of us interacts with people who have vastly different perspectives on life than those of Christ followers. If we are ever going to make a difference in the lives of those that we love and care about, those we want to come to see a a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them, is essential that we fully understand all the implications of a Christian worldview and also to comprehend how others view the world. This morning, I'd like to share with you some truths that I believe are very relevant as we look back at the difference 
between having a biblical perspective or worldview as opposed to a secular one. Worldview sounds kind of philosophical and abstract, doesn't it? In reality, a person's worldview is intensely practical. It is simply the sum of our beliefs about the world, the big picture that directs our daily decisions and actions. And why is it so important to understand worldviews? Well, as we sit here at CPC this morning, we have a vision that we want to see all in our community become lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to see people find meaningful relationships with Jesus and his church. If we're ever going to reach our family and friends with the gospel, the good news, then it's essential that we understand how others think. And even more so, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's crucial that our worldview is consistent with biblical perspectives. Life is all about making choices. Nothing that we do is in a vacuum, and every choice matters. And so many of the choices that we make every day come back to our worldview. Let me give you an example. Suppose on the way home today you decide to stop at Safeway. And as you walk in the store, you head to the produce aisle and you pick up an apple and you eat it. And then you walk by the iced tea aisle and you open up a bottle of Snapple iced tea and, and you drink it. And then you kind of cruise by the bakery and stop and eat a Danish. And then you walk out of the store without paying for any of it. Doing, um, we don't do that because we believe that to, to um, do that would be basically stealing. And we have an, an understanding of integrity when it comes to shopping at Safeway. Um, why it's so, so critical to have a biblical worldview? As Christ followers, we're supposed to honor God, please him through the choices we make, believe that the Bible is true, that God is who he says he is, and that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Over and over again, we are challenged as we follow Jesus to be more and more like him. So look, let's look at some scriptures that remind us of the necessity of thinking like Jesus and not like the world. The words are on the screens. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. There are many philosophies out there. Be aware of those that don't conform to God's standards. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you realize that we're engaged in spiritual battles? Let's not forget that. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Once again, we realize that our choices have an impact. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In other words, we don't rest on our own understanding, but we rely on God's wisdom. That's when our, our, our world really works and our lives work. So let's dive into the difference between having a biblical worldview as opposed to a secular one. Understanding that enables us to be more effective in sharing our faith. As we understand what a clear biblical worldview is, we'll be able to spot some of the false views and some of the false values of our culture and fully understand what is truth. Here are some of the questions that will help us identify what a biblical worldview is, or better still, how we can see the world through God-colored glasses. Where did I come from, and who am I? What has gone wrong with the world? How can we fix it? Do I believe in absolute moral truth, and where do I even find my standards of truth? The basis for a biblical worldview is God's revelation in Scripture. From a biblical perspective, the questions are answered like this. One, where did I come from, and who am I? We were created by a wise and good creator. He designed us to be holy and to live by his commandments. Because God loved us so much, he gave us the unique identity of being free moral agents. We are creatures who have the ability to make choices. We're, we were created in his image and reflect the character of God. What's gone wrong with the world? In a word, sin. In order to exercise our freedom of choice, God placed one moral restriction on mankind. Adam and Eve were told that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They exercised their free wills and chose what God commanded them not to do. They rejected his way of life. In doing so, they opened the door to death and evil. In theological terms, this is called the fall. The human race was originally created good, but became sinful as the result of an Adam and Eve's rebellion against God's law. It did not stop with them. All of us continue to rebel against God and break his laws. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how can we fix it? We need to experience spiritual restoration through salvation. God actually became one of us and lived among us. Jesus Christ died as our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we ought to die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. That's from 1 Peter 2.24. The debt we owed was paid for by Jesus who died in our place. He made it possible to offer us the greatest gift in the world, that he would give us his righteousness in forgiveness and life in exchange for our sins, guilt, and the death sentence. Do I believe in moral truth or absolute moral truth? To have a Christian worldview involves more than just experiencing God's plan of salvation. It's more than a relationship with Jesus that can be expressed through personal piety or church attendance and Bible study. It's more than believing in a system of doctrines about God. Why? 
because our beliefs are based on facts. They aren't just based on how we feel about it. Where do I find my standards for truth? We trust in the authenticity, the authority, the historicity, and the reliability of God's word found in the Bible. These are the foundations that we affirm to be factual. So we, from that, we realize that everything that exists came into being at God's command. He spoke everything into being out of nothing, and everything finds its purpose and its meaning in him. God created the physical world and natural laws and the moral laws that keep us healthy. God created our minds and laws of logic and imagination. So what exactly are the implications of embracing these truths? Every topic we investigate, from ethics to economics, the truth is found in a relationship with God and his revelation. Christian faith does indeed begin with John 3.16. Christianity cannot be limited to only one component of our lives as a mere religious practice or an unobservance of some kind, or even a salvation experience. Jesus must be seen as all-encompassing truth. He is the ultimate reality. But not so in our secular culture. Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2016 was post-truth. Post-truth is defined as an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. Or in other words, it's relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on the facts. It seems to me that post-truth definitely epitomizes the secular worldview. In his book, The Case for the Real Jesus, Author Lee Strobel interviewed Paul Copen, who wrote the book, True for You, But Not for Me. And I'm sure that you've obviously heard people even have sometimes said, well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. What is truth, Copen was asked. Truth is a belief, story, ideal, or situation that matches up with reality or corresponds to the way things really are. As an example, he said, if I say the moon is made of cheese, that's false because there's no correspondence or matchup with the way the things really are. Or consider an event in history. Martin Luther wrote his 95 Thesis in 1517. That's factually true. So if I say that I disagree or, or don't believe it, um, I would believe something that is false. So are you still with me on all this? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he said that, it corresponded to reality. He was authentically and faithfully representing to us who God is. In his book, Whatever Happened to Truth, New Testament scholar Andrew Krasenberger wrote this. The very notion of truth has largely become a casualty of postmodern thought and discourse. Truth is no longer the truth, in Jesus' terms, who claim to be the truth. Rather, it is conceived as your truth or my truth. In other words, there's the possibility of different yet equally legitimate ways of perceiving reality. Hence, 
Truth is simply one's preferred, culturally conditioned, socially constructed version of reality. He then goes on to say, ultimately, it comes down to to a theological question. Can there be an authoritative viewpoint? To put it into Christian terms, is there a possibility of special revelation in which God speaks authoritatively for all times and all cultures? Can God break into the scene and offer a way to know truth with confidence? Not only do I believe he can, but I believe he has. So where does all this take us? Probably from a Christian perspective, I believe it takes us to the resurrection. Is Geely, if Jesus really was I can speak resurrected, it's a fact of history. Then it validates his claim that he really is the unique son of God. And if he's the unique son of God, then we can rely on his teachings as being true. If we add or subtract to them, then we're in error because we're believing something that doesn't correspond with reality. I'm going to say that again. If Jesus really was resurrected, a fact of history, then this validates his claim that he really is the unique son of God. And if he's the unique son of God, then we can rely on his teachings as being true. Jesus' resurrection makes the gospel unique among religious and non-religious religious messages. The gospel is not rooted in ideologies or ideas, but in identity, in the identity of Jesus. He claimed to be the one who had no sin of his own and that he could therefore pay the price for our sins. That price is separation from God, who intended us to have a relationship with him. We only need to accept Jesus' payment on our behalf to be free from the sins that hold us back from that true purpose. Jesus came to restore us to what we were meant to be. So let's ask a big question. So what? Why is it essential to understand Christianity as true? Well, first of all, it enables us to have, make sense of the world that we live in and thus order our lives rationally. It helps us to understand forces that are hostile to our faith, equipping us to evangelize, defend Christian truths as God's instruments for transforming our culture. We see the world that was, it was created by an intelligent being rather than by chance and thus has intelligible order. The only way to have a healthy and rational life is to discover the nature of these divine laws and ordinances and then to use them as the basis for how we live. We all have a fairly good idea how the principle works when it comes to the physical order. Defying certain laws of gravity can have rather disastrous effects should you decide to walk off a cliff. There's no difference in moral laws either or that prescribe human behavior. Abandoning moral laws is also not without painful consequences. Anger, jealousy, broken relationships, abandonment. Probably the biggest difference between the biblical worldview and the secular one is the conflict between what we call theism and naturalism. Theism is the belief that there is a transcendent God who created the universe. Naturalism is the belief that natural causes alone are sufficient to explain everything that exists. 
So how do each of those answer these questions? Is ultimate reality God or the cosmos? Is there a supernatural realm or is nature all that exists? Has God spoken and revealed his truth to us or is truth something that we find or perhaps even invent for ourselves? Is there a purpose to our lives or are we cosmic accidents merging from the slime? Naturalism is the idea that nature is all that exists, that life arose from chance collision of atoms, evolving eventually into human life we know it today. In his book, How Now Shall We Live?, Charles Colson presents some interesting implications for us as we study worldviews. Let's take a quick look at these implications. The world believes in moral relativism. As such, there's no transcendent source of moral truth. Rather, we can figure it out our mortality on our own. So for most people, um, they base their values on what makes them comfortable, what they personally like, what suits their taste. Christianity teaches us that God has spoken. He has revealed an absolute and unchanging standard of right or wrong based entirely on his holy character. The world believes in multiculturalism. All cultures are most morally equivalent. Each merely reflects its own history and experience. Identity is found in our race, our gender, or an ethnic group. On the other hand, as followers of Jesus, we believe that truth can, be, can never be equated with limited perspective of any group. Truth is God's perspective as it is revealed in Scripture. The world believes in pragmatism, which really means whatever works best is right. Actions and policies are judged on practical grounds alone. And what about us Christians? Well, we're idealists. The biblical perspective is that we live our lives according to what ought to be based on objective standards. Jesus offers redemption from sin, giving power to overcome the single most, single, most powerful obstacle that keeps us from being righteous, our rebellious will. The world believes in utopianism, the belief that human nature is essentially good. Actually, if you've had a toddler, you might not think that. Um, with just the right social and economic structures, we'll all live happily ever after in perfect harmony. And what about Christianity? Sin is real, and none of our best efforts can create heaven on earth. Our hope of heaven will be fulfilled only by divine intervention. Naturalism is the this-world perspective. As such, only what happens in this world, at this and in this life and this age, as Christians, we think, see things from an eternal perspective. Everything we know has eternal consequence and significance because one day there will be judgment and then it will become evident that our choices in this life have consequences that last into eternity. Do you want to make a difference in your world? I believe that we all would say, absolutely. I believe that this life is not all there is. I want to see as many of my family and friends and neighbors come to know a life that Jesus promised when he said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. To know that God loves them, that he is the source of ultimate truth, 
that by following his wisdom, life will work, that he can be trusted. While it is true that no one comes to God apart from faith, Christian faith is not an irrational leap. The claims of the Bible are rational propositions, well supported by reason and evidence. If you haven't studied the historical evidence for our faith um, and want to investigate it more fully, inside your bulletin is a list of books that I have been reading in the last few months. I would encourage you to just take a look at them and maybe think about um, get ordering one off Amazon or start reading. We have abundant reasons to hold fast to the facts of our faith and the truth of it. So what is my challenge to you this morning? I echo the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to the hope that you have. Will you persevere as you follow Jesus Christ on the narrow road? As you embrace God's view of who you are? Will you be able to counter false claims and see your witness be more effective and be able to critique what you hear in our culture. As we close my sermon this morning, um, we often will read um, the Apostles' Creed together. But I want us to do it right now because the Apostles' Creed is one of the foundations that, that really, as we state it, it affirms what we actually believe. So will you turn your attention to the screen and read along with me with meaning, okay? The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father God, may we rest in the firm foundation of our faith. May we confidently affirm our assurance that you, Lord Jesus, did live a sinless life, that you sacrificed your life for ours, that you indeed rose again from the dead. May we be on guard not to let the world around us squeeze us into its mold. Holy Spirit, we are often bombarded on every front with objections and challenges to our faith. Give us wisdom, knowledge, and clarity to stand firm. If there's someone here this morning who has been struggling with doubts, may you awaken in them a curiosity to really investigate the basis of Christianity. And now may the words that we, um, that we have sung become something that's really part of, of what we truly believe. Encourage us, Lord Jesus. May we marvel that you did die for us as we participate in communion right now and remember your sacrifice. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.